Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Margaret Wertheim, science writer and author of, among other books, the recently released Physics on the Fringe, Smoke Rings, Circulons, Circulons, and Alternative Theories of Everything. Margaret, welcome. Nice to be here. That some title you've got for the book <laughs> drew me in immediately. Well, I, I always wanted to call the book Physics on the Fringe, and there was lots of different debates about what the subtitle should be, as there often is in publishing. At one point, I wanted to call it uh, the subtitle to be a scientific fairy tale. <laughs> but uh, my publishers liked the idea of having this bizarre mix of things in the, to immediately signal that we're in the alternative universe. Yes. Well, I know you've been collecting outsider physics theories for some time, but at what point did you realize, you know, this was a book, there was a book in this? Well, I have been collecting these theories for almost 20 years, and at first I didn't think I'd write a book about it. I just thought, you know, maybe it'd be an article, an interesting article for some magazine. But after a while I really did become fascinated with um, the phenomena, and I really wanted to answer the question, why are these people doing it? Why in an age of so much good science communication, when you've got... You know, lots of radio programs about science where lots of physicists themselves are writing books about relativity and string theory and dark matter and these things are being made into PBS TV shows. Why would so many people apparently feel the need to reinvent physics for the ground up for themselves? And so I thought that was a really interesting sociological question. No one else seemed to have written such a book, so I thought I'd, I'd better do it, and I set out on the journey of discovery to try to give some insight into that question. Yes. Now, as I read it, the overall thesis of the book is an interesting one, which you've just touched on, which is that even as physics becomes more theoretical, uh, more inaccessible, perhaps, to the layman, there are aspects of physics, certainly the notion of a theory of everything, um, that are almost more like art than like science, which are open to imaginative rather than mathematical or proof-driven responses. Yes, well, and that is one of the claims of the book, that there is a sense in which theoretical physics, and mainstream physics, that is, has become a kind of exercise in speculative imaginative literature, and particularly here I talk about string theory, because although it is couched very heavily in the language of mathematics, it has so far produced um, no empirical, that no empirical pr proof has been produced to support it. And that means that a lot of scientists themselves are beginning to grumble, well, is this really science if it doesn't work by that classic scientific method of you know, giving us empirical proof for the ideas which can be tested concretely from the equations, then is it really science? Um, and I believe that is an open question um, at the moment. What, what has happened at the operational ends of theoretical physics, however, is, is in general that we've got to a point of such success that the models we articulate, the physicists articulate, are so, so highly mathematically driven that they do seem to have almost become unmoored from physical reality. Yes, I mean, I, I, I have a copy of uh, Hawking's The Grand Design, which um, drew me in quite because of its title, yes. in which it suggests that it does, in fact, prove um, M-theory if you like. Yes. But of course, the proof is, uh, again, you, you allude to this kind of thing in your book, the proof is a formula, which of course is not empirical. So, yeah. Well, it would be if it may, it would be if there were concrete predictions that the formula proposed that had been tested and demonstrated to be so. I mean, that's why we know 
that the equations of relativity, whatever whatever anybody thinks of them existentially, they make very concrete predictions. So do the equations of quantum theory. And the proof of this is that you know, we have things like lasers and microchips. Um, we have GPS satellites that function really perfectly. So every time you make a GPS, every time you use a device that has a GPS um, tracker in it and that tells you, oh, you know, this is exactly where I am, the, those satellites are using very precise um, corrections based on the equations of both special and general relativity. So that's proof that those equations are literally working to assist us in everyday life with concrete, um, they're making concrete uh, predictions that are being actually carried out in the course of delivering the services that we use. But string theory so far has yet to make any prediction that has actually been tested. And it's not clear that it can, that the predictions of string theory could be tested um, with the particle accelerators available to us. There's no question if we had much, much bigger particle accelerators, we could begin to test string theory predictions, but that would cost tens and tens of billions of dollars. And it, it's not clear if our society is willing to go on spending tens of billions of dollars um, on this enterprise. Mm. But it's attractive, isn't it? I mean, it's attractive to think, and again, this comes back to this notion of poetry or imagination. It's attractive to think that there is an alternative or many alternative universes about us, and what I guess what draws science fiction writers. Yes. Yes, and and there are very very many, alter, there are very many um, differing theories of everything within the scientific mainstream, as well as um, among the guys that my book looks at. So there are lots and lots of different um, conceptions of what a theory of everything might be, um, and you know the, part of the issue that our society is now faced with is how are we going to determine which theories we look at and take seriously and therefore spend the resources um, testing and which theories we're just going to ignore. And uh, part of what I think my book is about is that that there isn't any hard and fast dividing line with what between what is acceptable science, maybe possibly acceptable science, um, re- unacceptable science, and then pure crankery. And what my book is trying to present is that there's a spectrum of these people. Um, there are insiders who've got rather bizarre ideas that many of their colleagues look askance on. Um, there are outsiders who've got views that everyone in the mainstream agrees are complete, uh, are not at all acceptable within the mainstream. And then there are people who hover on the edge. Is, is the theory okay? Is it possibly acceptable, or is it a bit, you know, just a bit heretical? And maybe one day it'll be proved right. And it's very difficult to know. Um, from any point in history, which are the ideas that um, history will validate and which of the ones we will look back at and say, oh, there was never any, you know, that was always a silly idea, but yet it was accepted in its time. Mm. And you, you certainly provide a historical context to that in the book. But the notion of a lay physicist, um, it's not one that I guess, so, I mean, I guess among the fringe dwellers, it, it is probably commonly held. But uh, certainly among academics, it's it's something that um, would be very highly resisted. Have you felt that from academia? Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, the scientific world, on the whole, does not want to engage with the subject of these fringe scientists or these outside scientists. Um, and and nor, in a very real sense, do I think they should have to. Um, you know, as a physicist friend once said to me. 
you know, he said, I can't spend all my time reading these outside the theories and trying to, you know, work out what's right or wrong about their theories. I've got my own research to do. Um, and and I think he's right. The job of the mainstream scientists is to get on his or her own work. Um, but what I feel with the... And, and I think there has been some real resistance in the outside, in the inside community towards me having seriously devoted, you know, six years of my time to writing a book about these people, you know, there's a bit of a feeling, why didn't why did you waste your time on those cranks? But I think that there's an important reason to have written this book and that's that I think this phenomenon is the tip of an iceberg which actually affects people a lot more widely. Um, and that is that I think these people are saying we feel alienated from the world of science as it's described in things like Scientific American when we read about things like relativity and string theory. We don't feel at home in the universe that describes. We actually feel alienated, bamboozled, and confused. And and I think this is a, there's a lot of people in our society who actually feel that. I think it's become a problem for science. And I think the one reason a lot of people are turning away from science is that the theories are so arcane now. It is really almost incomprehensible. And I don't know what the resolution to that is, but I think it's an important sociological issue that those of us who love science and care about it, I do think that we need to think about why is it producing this alienation, this sense of, I don't feel at home in that universe. And one of the reasons it matters is because if people don't feel at home in the universe science describes, it's not surprising they would go looking elsewhere. Mm. Yes, and I suppose as a science writer, you're really in many cases, a bridge between the, the popular perception of science and the actual work that's going on. Yes, and, and I see myself as a bridge um, in two senses. One is to help the public to understand the actual theories of science, but the other way in which I think science writers can and need to be bridges is to put the science into context and say, ask the, as it were, the meta questions or the sociological questions, why is anyone doing this in the first place? What does it mean um, that what does science mean in the wider cultural context? What does it mean for us as human beings? So I think science writers have a, have a twofold duty, and it's not just reporting on the discoveries, but in some real sense, making sense of science um, for human beings, for human society, in whatever age we live in. Yes. So talk to me a little about your main subject, Jim Carter. What what drew you to his work above all the others? that you've been collecting, because he's, you know, he's certainly the star of the book. Yes. Well, Jim is the hero of my book, um, and he is by, he's fairly unique among outsiders. In fact, I've never met another one out like him, and I'm very lucky. It just it so happened that he was the first one I met in person. Um, but I think that he is a very compelling person, and I would not have written the book had I not encountered him and become close friends with him. He has an amazing life. He um, has no training in science. He, in fact, left university before finishing his first year to go off and, off and search for long-lost meteorite. Then he got into gold mining and abalone diving, and he, in fact, devised his theories of physics while he was working mostly as an abalone diver. And he um, does everything for himself. He has an amazing house on a beautiful piece of property out uh, just south of Seattle. And he's at no training in building or architecture, but he's built his own house literally by hand, including lumbering the wood. 
And it's this, you know, slightly hobbity fantasy. It's all made out of wood and it's all a bit wonky. No angle is quite straight and it used to have grass growing on the roof. Um, and he just completely did it all himself in his own slightly jerry-rigged way. And he's dug, he's got a secret cave that he's hand dug, dug in a cliff below his cave and it's got hot and gold running water in, into his cave. It's, you know, hundreds of feet beneath his house and buried in his cliff. And Jim's view of the universe, of everything, is um, I need to do it for myself. If I want something done, I don't go and ask an expert how to do it. I teach myself how to do it, and then off I go and I do it. And I became extremely fascinated and impressed by this really can-do Yankee pioneer spirit alive and well in the 21st century. And I thought it was very, very brave world that he lived in, that he didn't feel daunted by anything, including building his own theory of the universe. And and he does beautiful diagrams and um, computer animations of his theories. I've never met another outsider who has the immensely beautiful, vital, graphic sensibility that Jim has. Is it also the case that one of his main draw cards, and, and maybe part of his intelligence, is this over, overriding sense of humor, ability to actually see himself in the broader context, which perhaps some of the outsiders are missing. Yes. <laughs> Jim does have a sense of humor. He can have a bit of a laugh at himself. And that's very rare in my experience. Most of these people, uh, they're very intense and very earnest and very sincere. Um, and But they they do tend to go on and on about you know one or two core ideas that they have and they get, they get a bit, you know, relentlessly earnest about it, and they can't really step back and see themselves in a broader context. So it becomes a little. Um, it is very humorous being with a lot of them. The broader context too, and I, you know, I I think this as science progresses, that perhaps you know this paradox of, on the one hand. Um, scientists becoming more, and maybe any profession really, becoming more and more specialized. And on the other hand, um, the need for this broader Renaissance perspective that brings in place history, cross-functional um, input to be able to make new discoveries, that you know, being a specialist is no longer going to be enough to cross that boundary. Well, I think we will always need specialists, particularly in the sciences. I mean, if we go to make progress with building better microchips, for instance, we really do need people who are complete specialists in semiconductors and in the, all the mathematics of bandwidth computation. Um, I think we will we will particularly um, need specialists for all the technological um, devices and advancement that we now seem to want more of. But I think that our society also very much needs to have cross-generalists, people who can cross disciplines um, and, and show us why and how to do scientific discoveries, um, how they operate you know, in a broader context, what are the broader implications of them, and how we're going to deal with those broader implications. So a very simple example of this is what's happening in, me in medicine. You know, me medical advance. Medicine is advancing in enormous capacity as we develop drugs for, to cure a wider variety of diseases and drugs that can be useful for delaying things like aging or cancer. Um, but then enormous social questions arise. Can we afford to give these drugs to everybody? If they're very expensive drugs, how do we make the decision which people get them, particularly if we develop 
you know, very expensive operations, how are we going, as a society going to decide um, who we're going to deliver these services to. So I think that the very success of science is great. It's given us technology that couldn't have been dreamed of even 100 years ago. But it opens up a whole lot of questions about how we're going to deploy this science in our societies. Mm. And not to mention the aging population as a result of you know curing a lot of things that used to kill us off. Yes, yes, that is going to be a huge issue. Mm, for sure. But even, I mean, with respect to theoretical physics, which is the subject of my book, I think the biggest question is going to be um, the current generation of particle accelerators and deep space telescopes cost on the order of $10 billion. The, mm. Any future generations of these immensely powerful, sophisticated equipments are going to cost even more. I mean, unless there's some major revolution in technology. It's not possible to build a particle accelerator, it seems, without spending tens of billions of dollars, not one that's going to be more powerful than the current one at CERN. How are we as a society going to deal with this? Are we still going to keep spending money on these quests towards these ultimate theories of the universe? Or are we going to decide that, look, we've spent enough, we, we, we just can't afford to make progress in that direction anymore? Mm. Um, yeah, those are fascinating sociological questions, and I guess you, you, you raise some of those in the book. Yes, my, the point of my book is really to look at the phenomenon of outsider science with, you know, in the quirky, charming, and I think hope fairy tale like life of Jim Carter. Um, I think his life is like some bizarre movie script. It's so enchanting and unlikely. But but for me, the real interest is to then embed him in the wider social context and ask, what does the whole thing mean? That what does it mean that a man in the trailer park? feels the need to reinvent physics from the ground up for himself. Yes. Of course, the Internet not only gathers theories and proponents, and again, you provide some information on that and how these groups are coming together in, in their own unique way, but also it allows for more of a sort of democratic, free online learning, including some you know very, very high-level physics lessons from the likes of MIT. Yes. Do you think that the role of academia in physics and, and other areas is changing, will change? Uh, not essentially. I mean, I think that the fact that these courses are available online from places like MIT is wonderful because it means that people all over the world can effectively be in an MIT classroom, um, and that's marvelous. But those, they're still the courses are still emanating from these, you know, accredited institutions. So the fact that it becomes available to a lot more people is absolutely wonderful. But it's still you know, it's still coming from MIT. Um, I mean, I do think we're going to see the outsiders starting to take up, do similar things. I think the outsiders will continue to, at the moment, they are streaming a lot every Saturday. They stream live talks. Um, and I'm sure they will continue to do more of that and probably place more of their own um, physics up online. They're already producing thousands of books which are available online. So I think there will be, a, um, as it were, um, a competing little universe from them. And I think for some people, the question will arise: um, Oh, how do I know which, you know, whether this is valid physics or not? Um, and I think the way that most people adjudicate that, because most people can't actually assess the theories from themselves, what they say is: Where is it coming from? If it's coming from MIT, it has an imprimatur that is trustworthy and trusted 
you know, with employers and trust, trusted with a whole lot of um, other organisations. If it comes from the Natural Philosophy Alliance, it's not going to hold any weight. You know, if you say I've done the NPA course, it's not going to hold any weight when you try to, you know, go and sign up for, you know, a degree at any university. So I still think it's going to be pretty clear what that the provenance of something um, is going to determine its, as it were, acceptable value in the mainstream world. Sure. Um, so talk to me a little bit about the Institute of Figuring. This is a pretty big project for you, isn't it? Yes. The Institute for Figuring is a little organisation that I started with my sister Christine um, she actually uh, has a full-time professorship at one of LA's main art colleges, the California Institute of the Arts. And we started an organization called the IFF, the Institute for Figuring, because we wanted to do projects to help people um, engage with science and mathematics in more creative and innovative ways. So the way we think of the IFF is that our mission is to engage people with science and math by looking at the creative and aesthetic resources that are inherent within these subjects themselves. So we put on exhibitions, we have workshops and lectures with scientists and mathematicians and engineers. And what we try to do is in all of our projects, instead of just having the experts stand there and talk and explain to the people what some theory is, we always have an activity where the people are engaged in doing something for themselves. So for instance, um, I've just spearheaded a big project at the University of Southern California at the library system there, where we've been folding a giant mathematical fractal out of 50,000 business cards. So this is um, a, a mathematical object called a fractal, and this is a fairly recently discovered fractal. Um, and Dr. Janine Mosley, who's an engineer um, in Boston, she uh, has figured out this wonderful technique of um, business card origami. And uh, you can fold business cards into these little cubes that can all be linked together a bit like Lego blocks, and you can build these giant fractal structures out of them. So we're making, this is a sort of giant participatory project where hundreds of students across the USD campus have been folding these cubes and making them into little modules that we all link together into bigger modules that ultimately get built into this giant thing. And it's a way of, of basically engaging people with the subject of fractal mathematics. But in a fun way, they're actually physically doing something and we've designed the business cards especially so it looks really beautiful. And that's the kind of project that the IFF does. We we are interested in large-scale participatory projects that involve a lot of people um, at the intersection of art, science, and mathematics. Mm. I mean, it sounds to me like a wonderful teaching tool, and I'll, I'll ask you about the Coral Reef project shortly as well, because it's similar in the context. But um, do you find as well, in addition to teaching about fractals that the new stuff is coming out of it that you know sort of in a kind of wisdom of crowds type way that it, you know you're actually discovering more than just just teaching the basics yes and in the process of doing this giant fractal object um what we've discovered is is that there are all of these um wonderful fractal rhythms within this object you know in 3d um you know that really its whole architecture um, has fractal patterns going on in every direction, in every dimension. And um, we hadn't really realized how fully that would play out until we actually built the thing. So it's really in the process of making something 
you do get a very deep engagement with it and often discover things that you know just wouldn't have been obvious to you just from looking at as it were um the algorithms that create it the algorithms are relatively simple um but it's not until you actually make it that you start to realize oh my gosh the fractal nature of it really plays out in these very deep ways and that's that's been very beautiful and you know very very fun to discover that and it, it what i say to people is it's really like it is like doing um applied mathematics we are actually um using mathematical tools to build this object um and and one is making mathematical discoveries about the nature of the object as one literally brings it into being Mm. And, and with the Coral Reef Project, I mean, I guess it's a similar concept, but because of, the, I guess because of the handicraft nature of it and the types of people who work on it, um, who have the capability of working on it, it's a very female sort of thing, isn't it? Almost a female kind of wisdom that comes into this type of science. Well, the, the Crochet Coral Reef Project is, um, we believe, the world's biggest um, participatory science and art project. and tens of thousands of women have been involved in crochet reef workshops and collectively building these um, crochet coral reefs all over the world. And But it has surprised us that it is so female. Um, I had expected when we started the project that there would be more women than men, probably a sizable number more women, but I also thought there would be quite a few men. And it's actually surprised me that We've of the thousands and thousands of women who've participated, we've really only had you know a dozen or so men, and I really didn't think it would break down so much along gender lines. Um, it does show you that we still have that that these things are still primarily regarded as female crafts. Um, but I do think uh, it's been a beautiful project, and it has this beautiful dynamic female energy to it. I think, um, but. Yeah, I didn't expect it to be quite so gender. <laughs> well, I suppose there aren't that many men who, who can crochet at that level. Oh, I no, mean, you don't have to be an expert time. crochet. You can be, I mean, we have plenty of people in the project who've never picked up a crochet hook before. Wow. I mean, it's, we, it's, we do have we have lots of people who are really good crochets, but many, many people who come to the project have, have never crocheted. How did How did the project come about? Uh, that's quite a, a bit of a story, but I'll try to tell it briefly. Um, um, uh, I'll have to go in a few minutes. Uh, we have a checkout time at this hotel. Um, okay. But the the reef. You can be very brief. <laughs> yeah, the the reef project came about because um, Chrissy and I had been um, doing the purely mathematical crochet. There was a mathematician, Dana Tamina at Cornell, who discovered that. Um, you could crochet models of hyperbolic space using these simple crocheting techniques. Um, and we worked uh, with her in doing just purely mathematical ones for a while and had a little exhibition of them, but then realized there was really only a very limited number of structures you could make with the pure mathematics, that it really became, um, after a while, there was nothing more you could do. So Christine actually started branching out going wonky. Instead of doing purely mathematical ones, she deviated from the act absolute algorithm and started just kind of going free form and as soon as she did that they began to look organic and that's and after she had done a small collection of them we had them sitting on our coffee table and realized they looked like a coral reef and that's not a coincidence because of course the forms in coral reefs are uh, they are 
embodiments of hyperbolic geometry, but they're completely wonky. Nature doesn't have mathematically perfect anything. So it's only when you introduce a wild element to it that it begins to look organic and that you can really begin to make it look like a natural thing. And really the project has been a six-year-long experiment in how to make it look um, more and more like a coral reef, which really has meant you know, really deviating very strongly from the to mathematical perfectionism because nature um, just does go wild. It's like evolution. You know, you start with very simple seeds, you know, with simple DNA, as it were, but then as you go along, you get more and more complex and more, more diverse ecology of creatures. And so there really has been an evolutionary strand of the project in which it's really um, like uh, life on Earth. We have evolved a very complicated, diverse taxonomic um, crochet tree of life. Science with the body. Yes, indeed. Yep. Yeah. All right. I know you're in a rush. So, last question: um, What's on the cards for you? What's coming up? Well, the thing that I, the thing that I really want to do next, actually, is write a book about the whole crochet coral reef project, mm. with all the it's, ecological and global warming and marine biology and mathematical um, elements of the project, and also just honouring the incredible beauty that these thousands of women around the world have created with these glorious collective sculptures. Wonderful. We'll look forward to it. Thank you so much for your time today, Margaret. And that's all we have time for. So um, bye for now.